0: Oh Lord, we offer our lives to you, and you offered your life for us. Oh Lord, we ask that you would renew our minds, and that you would help us to love like we have been loved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight. I hope that uh, it's an informative and enjoyable night as we gather Actually, I just I left up, if someone could grab those books that are up there for me. Um, we're going to be taking uh, three weeks to go through what's uh, a great book that I've just started, or I just read, called Secular Creed, and I've been looking at it uh, for a while, and my hope is, is what John Carr said today, that the reality is, is that we're always being taught, and I want us to know how to live in this strange world that we're in. Uh, and so this book is written by a lady called Rebecca McLaughlin. She's a modern day apologist. She she actually comes out of, um, she has same-sex attraction, but then got married and, and now is involved in writing and teaching and speaking, giving really great ways of thinking about the Christian faith for modern times. And this book deals with some really hard topics, but does it in a way which doesn't fall off either end of the spectrum, but goes down the middle, which is really helpful. So if you'd like to read along, um, I've got four copies of the book. Um, you can buy them for $20 each. They're only small, but you know things are expensive in Australia. So $20, that's there. You can grab one of them or order it yourself online. Let me read to you from 1 Peter, just to frame us up a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 2 Peter understands that for people that call Christ their Lord, uh, they're in the church, that we're set apart, we're in the world, but we're set apart from the world. And we're to live in such a way that we don't live like we used to, uh, but we also don't live in such a way that's just anti-world either. Uh, That's the situation we find ourselves in. And we find ourselves in a unique cultural moment where we have moved largely away from the historic teaching of uh, Christianity, uh, but the remnant is still there. The the moral framework that undergirds um, our society is still Christian, but they want the teachings or the good news of Christ without the king. Um, And so that means that's why there's these confusing things that are in our culture, confusing ideas which at first you think, oh oh yeah, that's good, but I'm not so sure about that. Uh, and Rebecca McLaughlin um, has done a great job of putting these all together into one book and helping us look at them. Uh, and tonight, what we're going to do, rather than deal with one of the particular topics, I believe that, hey Steve, yeah. hey Noki, come on in guys, um, I believe that what we need to do in order to be able to deal with these difficult topics is that we actually need to lay a foundation uh, and we actually need to know how to deal with all topics in order that we can deal with the specific ones one by one. Um, And so if you're a Christian here tonight, thanks for coming. Uh, And the question for you is, yeah, how do I navigate this world as a Christian in God's world? If you're not yet a Christian or you're investigating, you're seeking or a different religion, you can look on tonight and think, oh, how do Christians navigate the world? You might have various ideas about what Christians are, what Christians do, and you may or may not like them. Uh, And I hope that through looking at how Christians ought to view the world, it might appeal to you to look deeper into it. Rebecca McLaughlin, in the beginning of her book, starts with this question and story What does that mean? My eight year old held a bracelet she'd found at school. Stamped on its rim were three words Love is love. On our drive to church, we pass a hair salon, its windows filled with posters of George Floyd and a massive multicolored wings proclaiming Trans Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Love is love. Better together. Across our neighborhood, yard signs declare, in this house, we believe that black lives matter. Love is love. Women's rights are human rights. We're all immigrants. Diversity makes us stronger. Now, you may not see signs like that, but you can actually buy a sign like that on Amazon. I looked it up. There's heaps of people selling them. Uh, and you may not see a sign like that but i'm sure in your workplace i'm sure in your school your university context (laughs) or on your friends facebook instagram tiktok feeds that's the type of stuff we're seeing she says that signs like this sketch out a secular creed or statement of belief it centers not on god but on diversity equality and everybody's right to be themselves so what is meant to be our response to those kind of slogans that are there. And depending on the, your nature and your makeup, th- there's varying ways that we can look at them. We can get angry about them. We can be totally accepting of them. Or well, maybe, and I wonder if this might be the temptation for most of the people who call SG Para home, we might want to just be a bit absent from them. We just want to be like, I'm not touching that. <laughs> it's too hot to handle. And by the way, I'm stealing so much from Rebecca's book tonight, so all copyright to her, all genius to her. She says this, Seeing signs like this, Christians tend to grab hammers. Some grab one to drive the sign into their own lawn. They lament racial injustice. They believe in diversity. They know women are equal to men. And they've been taught that affirming gay relationships, trans identities and pro-choice positions come part and parcel with these other things. If black lives matter, which they surely do, then love of all kinds must be love. Others take up hammers with a different plan. Knowing that the Bible rejects some things that underlie this modern creed, they swing a hammer to flatten the sign. Perhaps not literally, but in their hearts and minds. If these ideas stand together, they must all be wrong. You see, the either end of the spectrum... Um, and because we're in this setting and it's Sunday night, it's a bit different to Sunday morning, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to do a little bit of interaction time. And so I want you to turn to the people around you and ask this question. Of either end of those hammer or maybe the absent temptation, which one's more of your temptation? Are you more likely to get the sign and be like, oh, I better put it in my lawn too? Or you are more likely to be smacking that sign down? Or are you more likely just to be, oh, I'm going to leave that out there and not touch it at all? Uh, and where do you see these kind of slogans, these creeds come to part in your life? So have a, have a brief chat about that um, in your groups and say hi if you don't know the people around you. <laughs> <laughs> Quick show of hands. Okay, hammer, if you're, more, if you're willing to put your hand up, hammer more likely to put it into your yard. You're like, ah, oh, I'm tempted by these. Not many, any. Hammer more likely to smash them over. Okay, that's probably me, if I'm honest. Um, And then hammer more likely to just uh, drop the hammer. Like, we're out of this. I don't want to touch a hammer. It's not hammer time. It's not, tell MC Hammer, it is not hammer time. Well, helpfully, Rebecca McLaughlin offers a third approach. She says this, wielding a marker instead of a mallet. Uh, This book will consider these five contemporary claims black lives matter, the gay rights movement is the new civil rights movement, love is love, women's rights are human rights and transgender women are women. I like that, wielding a marker instead of a mallet. So rather than wholesale rejection or wholesale acceptance, well as Christians we're going to edit. She goes on to say this, examining each claim through the lens of scripture and in light of culture we'll aim to disentangle ideas christians can and must affirm from those ideas christians cannot and must not embrace now, let me say that again examining each claim through the lens of scripture and in light of culture will aim to disentangle ideas christians can and must affirm from ideas christians cannot and must not embrace It's not either or. And we're to pick up a marker instead of a mallet. Now, why is that? Why do we get a marker? Why do we edit rather than just reject um, or accept? Well, because of what the Bible teaches is about God's common grace. Every culture has parts of God's law and revealed will that it knows and obeys by His grace. Western culture, Eastern culture, every culture can see parts of God's law, see parts of who God is intuitively, and they agree with some things, and they obey it, and actually there's good things in every culture. It's not completely, totally, utterly forsaken. And every culture has parts of God's law and revealed moral will that it rejects or is ignorant of, and that's a sign of God's judgment on that culture. And so the reason why we're marking a mallet rather than a mallet is because we don't want to tear down something that God calls us to affirm. And we don't want to affirm something that God calls us to tear down. And so we need to be good cultural uh, readers. And we see this reality in Romans chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, uh, grab Romans chapter 1, and we're just going to walk through just this common grace reality. Romans 1, 18 to 25, we'll do it in a few little parts. The Apostle Paul, writing to churches in Rome, uh, and Rome was not a Christian city by any means, and he has hard words to say, but helpful words. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because... God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So the the world has... An idea of God. They they can know things about God. We have a consciousness. That's why a lot of the morality across every single tribe and culture, whether they're Christianized or not, doesn't approve of murder, adultery, stealing, and lying. Now, some of them do, some of them don't, but if you put them all together, in general, God has made plain to most people a morality. His invisible attributes, this idea, you go any culture in the world and they're worshipping something they might have broken God down into you know, gods of wood and stone and wind and water or technology, science, et cetera. Et cetera but they're worshipping something. There's something in them that wants to worship. There's something in them that realizes that there's more to us than us. There's something. But as Paul goes on, they don't all get it right. Romans 1, 21-23, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Though we can perceive parts of God's nature, our instinctive human tendency of all of us, no exceptions to those who are in this room, outside of Christ, we would suppress the truth. We take the good, and instead of worshipping God, we make it the God. So, you know, in their culture, they had idols that they bowed down and worshipped, and maybe your culture has that too. Uh, But even if you don't have images of wood and stone, we have images engraved in what used to be, you know, sand and things like that, that, that we worship, that we bow down to. We suppress our knowledge of God... We take the good, but we don't want the God bit. But the result of that is actually we become futile in our thinking and darkened. And so although we can sort of, as cultures, get some things right, we get so many things wrong and it becomes a mess. And this is how we get into this mess. It's actually God's judgment. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the cre- creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we suppress the truth, and instead of having the Bible as our creed, we have this new secular creed, which is some parts drawn from Christianity and some parts drawn from the ignorance of the flesh and the futility of our minds. But the reality is, is that it's all worship. You can't escape the worship element. That's why people get so heated when we start to talk about any of these claims. It's not just an idea that people like. This is, this is a governing principle. This is a self. This is an identity. And so when, if you push back on it at all, oh, that's harmful. That's hate speech. You're killing people. Because it's not just an idea. It's, it's people's God. It goes to the core of our being for some. So putting it all together, no one culture has got it all right or all wrong. It's not as simple as that. And one of the benefits of multiculturalism in Australia is that we get to interact and humbly learn from each other. Um, different cultures all taste and see different good parts of God's law. So when I was in Ethiopia, it was amazing. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, you're walking around, didn't see a single sexually promiscuous ad. And yet, somehow, they still manage to sell products. Believe it or not, you can sell toothpaste without someone in a bikini. I, I had no idea. Not that I've ever seen a toothpaste bikini. That's probably drawing the line, but you know what I mean. It was amazing. I was walking through, and look, okay, I was in the airport, Abu Dhabi, okay, or wherever I was, I don't even remember, Dubai or Addis, anyway, and there was a Victoria's Secret shop. And I walked past, I was like, oh, okay, better not look in there. And I looked for a second and was like, oh, there's not a single image. It's just the clothing. So you could have a lingerie brand that in, um, in Australia or America or any Western country would be full of lewd images, but now it's just actually the product um, and the clothing. I said, like, oh, that's interesting. They're able to sell things without sex. It's, it's possible. Or in, um, I've noticed in, in Australia that when you bring... or in all parts of the world, the Asian culture often is highly hierarchical and there's really good parts about that. There's expectations of submission, there's expectations of honour between you know elders to youngest and that's really good. In Australian culture we're far more egalitarian which can be really good too because we respect everyone as equal and there's no sort of you know you're lesser because you're younger or anything like that. But each of those cultures can obviously get those ones really wrong as well you can have abusive authoritarianism or you can have chaos of egalitarianism you can have both within and so we can see as we put all the cultures together that we can't just follow one blindly we have to be exegetes of our culture but better than that we when we can learn from the different cultures but actually we need a better source we need a definitive source of what is right and wrong a definitive source that can for one time define and dictate the truth and by God's grace He has given us that. Um, as Christians we believe the Bible is that one source that will actually cut through all the cultures over all time and give us the answer. If you turn in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, that means like correcting or rebuking, for correction and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Scriptures are our definitive God. That's how we as Christians are going to figure out how to navigate and work in our culture. Now, there's no verses for some of the particular issues we deal with. It's not like you can turn to the thing and be like, okay, what do we do with this issue for all of it? We can't. We have to be smarter than that. We have to put the whole story together. We have to work hard. It's not easy. But in the Scriptures, we have everything we need to successfully navigate our culture. We don't need anything more than what God has given us. So no matter how confusing or perplexing or saddening our culture may be, if we have the Word, we are actually equipped to face it. We don't have to drop the hammer and absent ourselves. We can actually pick up the marker, but we need to pick up our Word first. And by giving ourselves to careful study of all of Scripture, the Word's the verses, the paragraphs, the the chapters, the books, both testaments, the styles of literature, the themes, the arcs, the plot lines, we will actually be able to do this. We won't just grab a hammer and smash the culture down or grab a hammer and just coalesce with the culture and become one. Instead, we'll get out our marker, we'll edit the sign and we'll find what is true, good and beautiful in each of these secular creeds. So, this is what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks and including a little bit more tonight. Examining each claim through the lens of Scripture and in light of culture, will aim to disentangle ideas Christians can and must affirm from ideas Christians cannot and must not embrace. But then Rebecca says this, and I thought this was very helpful. She says, "'But to wield the marker well, we must get down on our knees.'" To wield the marker well, we must get down on our knees. First, we must recognize that that the tangling of ideas in the secular creed has been driven not only by sin in the world out there, but also by sin in the church in here. We must fall on our knees and repent. The frequent failure of Christians to meet biblical ideals of fellowship across racial difference, equal valuing of men and women... Welcome for outcasts, love for those with unfulfilled desire, and care for the most marginalized has allowed this mixture of ideas to coalesce under the banner of diversity. Now, sadly, it is the truth. Now, you know, it's hard to repent for things that our forefathers have done, and and I'm not sure exactly how that works, but the sentiment is true. We ought to recognize that some of these errors in our culture are actually driven by errors within the church. People are, aren't loved in the church and they're driven out into the world um, where they find new and even better communities than the church community. And we've seen it even in Australian history. Uh, stolen children, the white Australia policy, shaming and shameful practices. So we've got to get on our knees first. And additionally, we've got to realise that, and Carl Truman in his great book, um, the rise and triumph of the modern self, have shown us that th- these realities come from somewhere. Like they, they, didn't just, uh, they feel like they've just become mainstream, but actually it's been about four centuries in the making. And what he recognizes, and I'm slowly working through his very big book, and it's very important, and you should all read it if you can. There's actually a shorter version too called Strange New World, which I commend to you as well. And his book is wrapped around this idea of, you know, this sentence, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. How could that be an intelligible sentence? And it is intelligible in our day and age, but how did we get there? And he says it actually comes from what he calls expressive individualism. The modern self, a self that is divorced from biological and theological realities. And out of this new conception of self arose the sexual revolution, and out of that arose a species of self, the trans self. But he also makes the cutting analysis that we're all expressive individualists now. In our church, at Summer Grace Parramatta, we are affected by expressive individualism. That is, it's not just a problem out there, it's a problem in here, and we have to deal with that first. We choose to be Christians and charismatic Christians. We choose to be complementarian Christians. This idea of choice, that this is who I conceive myself to be, is is actually born out of four centuries of thought. In the past, you were what your family was. You were what your king was. You didn't have choices. But this expressive individualism is actually part of us. And it's not all bad. It's good that we can choose, you know, to go to particular churches that are true and not true, and it believe doctrines that are true and not, you know, don't believe the ones that aren't true, but you know what I mean. So it's not all bad, but we've got to realize that we're a part of it too. It's not just that the people out there have got this problem. It's like, we've got it too. And then he also makes a cutting analysis, and he says that there can also be a tendency in the church world, and I recognize this, it's actually in my own heart, to lament, to wish for a past time when the world was simpler, morality was clearer and the future brighter. But Truman healthily rebukes us of this notion and he says this, what past times were better than the present? An era before antibiotics? When childbirth or even minor cuts might lead to septicemia and death? The great days of the 19th century when the church was culturally powerful and marriage was between one man and one woman for life, but little children worked in factories and swept chimneys. Perhaps the Great Depression, the Second World War, the era of Vietnam. Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. That cut me because I can whine. Yeah, I'm good at complaining and it's bad. But instead, we ought to understand the problems and respond appropriately to them. That's why we've got to engage with this stuff. And additionally, additionally, instead of whining and complaining, we, we actually ought to have sympathy. And we actually ought to have grief not about the ideas so much definitely about the ideas but we need to recognize that these are not mere slogans these aren't just hype titles these words the secular creed represent heart cries pulsating from people dealing with real hurts real oppression that they've experienced real abuse real depression real anguish we ought to grieve and feel their pain before we, you know, take up our whining or our complaining or our lamenting of the culture. There's a famous article by Andrea Long Chu in the New York Times. Um, this person speaking of their own gender dysphoria. And he's about to have gender reassignment surgery before writing the article. And he says that the article is saying um, the title. Well, there's kids in the room. I won't say the title, but along the lines of, I'm going to get a V, and it's not going to make me happy. And then it's quite a moving article, and he says this, although I'm sure Andrea would prefer me to call him her, but I won't. He says this, dysphoria, gender dysphoria, feels like being unable to get warm no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like getting on an aeroplane to fly home, only to realise mid-flight that this is it. You're going to spend the rest of your life on an aeroplane. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. So, behind all the, the slogans and the hype and the, and the billboards and the placards, people are really hurting and they're desperate. Now, Michael Emler, in his great work as a Christian counsellor, he defines, and he's talking about Christian counselling, but he says, we've got to realise that all th- all, we all have three identities. We're a saint, if you're a Christian, you're actually a saint, you're holy. We're all sinners, but we're also all sufferers. And that's true, the last two is true of every non-Christian too. they They're sinners, yes, but they're sufferers too. These hurts arise out of hurts. These cries come out of real tears at times. And yes, people get on the bandwagon, etc., but we've got to not overlook the real hurt that people have. So the temptation now might be to think, well, we've got it so wrong as a church, the church, maybe we should just get rid of Christianity, the church and religion and start again. Or you might think, oh, well, we need to get on the right side of history and just help these hurting people and adopt what they have to say. But that would be a grave mistake, according to McLaughlin. She says this, But with our heads bowed to the earth, we will see that the very ground in which the yard sign stands is unmistakably Christian. Clear that Christian soil away and you won't find solid rock, secular rock, you'll find a sinkhole. To our 21st century, western ears, love across racial and cultural difference. The equality of men and women and the idea that the poor, oppressed and marginalized can make moral claims on the strong, rich and powerful sound like basic moral common sense. But they are not. These truths have come to us from Christianity. Rip that foundation out and you won't uncover a better basis for human equality and rights. You'll uncover an abyss that cannot even tell you what a human being is. Like cartoon characters running off a cliff, we may continue a short way before we realise that the ground has gone from beneath our feet, gone from underneath our feet, but it has gone. Without Christian beliefs about humanity, the yardside and claims aren't worth the cardboard on which they're written. So we can't ditch the Christianity or the church because it's actually the the soil out of which any of these ideas make any sense and have any moral claim. The US, in their Declaration of Independence, begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Yuval Noah, Noah Harari says this, he's an atheist, Jewish atheist, the Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in Christian myths about God, creation and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? Well, you need Genesis 1. If you don't have Genesis 1, how do, you, how do you build a case for equality or diversity or value or that we have any, anything better? He goes on to say in his famous book, Sapiens, There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. Without the Christian soil, it's imagination. We have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. Rebecca McLaughlin says... We need Christianity to be right for human rights abuses to be wrong. And I can prove all of that if you give me enough time. Equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing a common assumption that everyone possessed inherent worth. The origin of this principle do not lay in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. The signs need the soil, and thus we can have confidence, because the soil in which the Word of God produces is an even better story. We have so much resources for our culture, we don't need to retreat because actually, the resources we have is what our culture desperately needs to be understand what true equality is. What true diversity is. What true love is. And so she said to her daughter and says to her kids now, So when we pass these signs, I tell my children that in our house, we believe that black lives matter because they matter to Jesus. We don't believe that love is love but that God is love and that He gives us glimpses of His love through different kinds of relationship. We believe women's rights are human rights because God made us male and female in His image and for the same reason we believe that babies in the womb have rights as well. We believe God has a special concern for single mothers, orphans and immigrants because Scripture tells us so again and again. And we believe that diversity does indeed make us stronger because Jesus calls people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship Him as one body together. So for us as a church, and for anyone listening in, I I want us to be wise cultural observers, who are engaging our intellect and our hearts, who are challenged not just in our beliefs, but also in our practice. That we would put down the mallet, either to hammer the signs out of fear or acceptance into our own lawn or to smash them over in anger and rebellion and instead pick up your bible and as we study and investigate then we can pick up our markers and judiciously and wisely and lovingly edit the secular creed together looking for what we can affirm and what we must deny and ultimately helping people to see the goodness, truth, and beauty that are in Christ himself, which is ultimately what everyone is longing for. They just haven't met him yet. She ends her introduction by saying this, As you walk through this book, I hope you'll feel both humbled and empowered. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you'll be ready to join with a call to loving arms at the end. But if you're not following Jesus, or you couldn't imagine ever wanting to, I hope you'll see the moral soil in which you stand is more Christian than you realize. And I hope you start to wonder if the poor, first century, brown-skinned Jewish man known as Jesus of Nazareth, who lived as a member of an oppressed ethnic group and died at the hands of an imperial regime, might truly be the saviour of the world, the one who showed us what love is, by laying down his life for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna have a time to discuss and see what you thought of that, and then a QA moment. God, I pray and ask that you would help us to have courage and compassion, help us to search your word by your spirit and help us to figure out how do we live in this world as exiles without retreating without rebelling but actually coming to remake our broken world and pray this in jesus name amen all right what do you think is step one to engage with someone who firmly who holds firm to one of these creeds yeah good great question listen. Yeah, (laughs) listen and maybe ask them questions. Most like, I mean, you've got to be careful with that, because it can be annoying if you keep asking questions, because unfortunately, if you don't have something like the Bible and a transcendent understanding of who God is, you'll end up, they'll end up unraveling themselves in a conversation, most likely, because the, the underpinning, it's like the age-old question, who made God? You, you'll end up getting there if you keep asking questions. You've got to be careful and you just be wise. But just listen and ask questions and, and love them. And don't try and change their view in, in the first conversation or critique them. Just, oh, that's interesting. How did you come to that? Or, you know, why do you find that? Why do you believe in that? Why do you think that's such an important thing? Or, um, and just do that. Like, treat them how you would like to be treated. Like if you told them, hey, I believe in Jesus, and they said, tell me more about that. You'd be like, oh, okay. Uh, And so just do the same to them and show them the same love that you would like, and then maybe you'll win a hearing. Is there ever a time where it is more loving to keep silent when these hot topics come up? What about when you're outnumbered as well? I mean, Jesus said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Uh, I think there's not, we don't have a duty that we have to stop every conversation and say, well, actually, the Bible says. Um, So, yes, there is a time. Uh, Is it more loving? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to be driven by love. Uh, But love doesn't acquiesce or just say, believe whatever you want or if it feels good, it's true. Um, But. There is, I think, wisdom in love, and we're to love with wisdom. and to That's why we have to be in the Spirit and be thinking, okay, well, what's going to be most helpful for them in this moment? And even praying like, Spirit, do you want me to speak or not? Uh, do you want me to say something or not? And just, I would say just let the Lord lead you. I, I couldn't tell you how to know that, and there's going to be times when you're going to do it. I-, I would say probably if you're more likely to pick the mallet up and drive it into your own soil, you probably need to more often actually say something. But if you're more likely like me to be like, well, let's talk about it, you're probably more likely just need to be quiet and go, all right, I'm, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to pray for them. Uh, I'm going to have them on my heart. I'm going to seek to befriend them. Um, and I'm going to seek to tell them the truth at a time where it's ripe, uh, perhaps. Uh, and so, you know, you're in a work conversation or a school or, or your friendship group, uh, but there are times when, if you know someone well enough, like Maddie, you know, she was at Netball, and it was the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, and, you know, we, we believe um, in pro-life that the children in the womb are sacred, made by God, and she was like, oh, what?" a you know, her friend was like, what a terrible day, and Maddie's like, well, actually, um, you probably told the wrong person about this, because I actually think it's really good, and then they had a, they had a good conversation um, about it, but they knew each other well, and they, they could have the conversation, and uh, yeah, I think it it went fine. Yeah, yeah. But there's probably other times when you're like, I'll just let that one through to the keeper. There's some thoughts. Are we compromising the gospel if we re- refer to someone by their pronoun? We are going to get to this topic in more detail. I think there's a few things you've got to think about, compromising truth. Um, the reality is that Jesus came as a man to save humankind, um, and the particulars of what the Bible has to say about things all join up somewhere. And when we change what the Bible has to say about one thing, it's going to end up deviating somewhere Um, and so once we start getting foundational Genesis 1 realities out of whack it's going to start affecting the gospel probably in the long run Um, so it's not directly related to did Jesus Christ die on the cross for our sins and rise again and is he coming back to judge us but by implication it, it, it plays in my preference, and this is, you know, you can figure out how you want to do it, I- is not to refer to someone by their pronoun, um, their preferred pronoun, because I believe that I- it's untruthful speech. Um, uh, if, you know, and it's a bit of a hack and whatever, but, like, you wouldn't call someone a doctor who's not a doctor. Um, and so I wouldn't call someone a mister who's a, a missus, or a mi- et cetera, et etc., cetera. Uh, But I would at all costs try and avoid using the pronoun um, if I can. So, okay, you want to tell me your name's Bruce? Um, Okay, hi, Bruce. And let's avoid the argument if I can. But if you're in a work situation and you're forced to, uh, I'm in a situation where I don't have that pressure, so I don't know what that's like. But I would encourage you to get some wisdom and counsel and think about what you're going to do there. Because it feels like love is to respect other people if they want to be called that well then they but actually to give in to that is actually to give into an unloving framework because God said you shall be male and female we don't we're not God and we can't determine those realities ourselves they're received from our creator um, and so it's awkward but you don't you sort of don't want to give in to the whole mindset that does that but you might not want to do that on step one of a conversation uh, and so it's very tricky I mean these are touch point issues and, and that's why we're doing them so I'll say that much and then we'll, we'll talk about it maybe next week maybe I don't know which one we're going to do next but I think the trans one is important how about those people who are already in your life or you have gone through the path how about those people who are already in your life or you have gone through that, uh, or you yourself have gone through the bath, will you not be accepting of that person or of yourself? Then there's also the Bible teaching that you shall not judge and that we should avoid that we should love one another as God loves us. So how can we love one another if we cannot accept each other? And it's a similar issue. We've got to define what love is. And the Bible tells us what love is. It's self-sacrificial good for others, um, and so it's not loving, you know, as a obviously as a doctor to speak to someone who has cancer and you know it's going to really upset them and it's going to be really tough and emotionally. So you tell them that they don't. Obviously, that's malpractice. You'd be fired. Um, and so, as people who know the truth, uh, people who know God Himself. We are spiritual doctors, and we have a duty uh, to love people as best we can. Um, And so it's not judging someone uh, to tell them the truth. If they feel judged, that's on them. If they feel shame, that's on them. You're not shaming them. Um, The reality is, is that sadly, that shame is already there, uh, and that what we're doing often when we speak truth is exposing shameful practices that are already there, and, and it's hurtful, and it's raw, and it's painful. And we feel like the bad guys, but but actually, if we if we're loving and gentle, and we uphold what the Bible says, but still speak the truth, that experience of shame that they're feeling is is probably from God, and we wouldn't want (laughs) to take that away from people as well. So, can I say something? There's also, you know, people have judged and put shame on. Christians have done that. Yeah. Yeah, and that could be tr- triggering to not misuse that word, but if people have all just experienced hate and shame and outcasts and discrimination and, and all of that, then you might be entering their story and you don't know where you're entering. And so that's why that first question is great. It's like, let's, let's listen, let's love, let's find out the story. And I would even say you're in those circumstances. I would sort of like reserve the right to say, hey, look, can... Can we pause that there? Can I, I just learn more about you before? I don't want to get caught up on this issue. Can we talk about this? Um, because you might want to just play the game a bit differently uh, because this is like hard line. This is like walking into Mecca and saying, guess what, guys? Muhammad, it was a dream. Uh, that, you know, like that's not going to go down well. Uh, yeah, you're not leaving Mecca. Uh, that's your last pilgrimage. Uh, So, recognizing people are carrying hurt, but with love means truth. Uh, Truth and love are not on opposite sides. Jesus brought them together. uh, So, we bring them to Jesus and they'll find truth and love. All right. How about those people... Oh, okay. How do you engage in the conversation that someone's suffering, e.g. life, abuse, past hurts, has led to living in sin, making a God of your identity... And that if it's wrong, how do you engage in the conversation? So the, the question is that their past has led to their present. Like that's, that's the reason for it. And yeah, yeah it's, it's probably true. Um, now, no one's a robot. We all make choices. Um, but we've got to be aware that significant things happen to people that can cause significant reactions. Um, and so we've got to be sensitive to that. But we also need to realize that no one can make you do anything unless they're literally making you do something. But there are obviously emotional abuses and, and things that can trigger people into certain things. But we've got to, again, keep come back to the word uh, that because of suffering doesn't mean... It's a license to recreate our world how we would like to do it. Um, the, the reality of the curse didn't mean that Adam and Eve could just stop living for God now that they're in a cursed world. No, they've got to still remake a broken world, um, but we're now carrying, instead of carrying like a light <laughs> backpack, it's, it's a burden. Uh, and, you know, that great John Bunyan... Um, track to pilgrim's progress this this burden that people are carrying just weighs them down and once they're aware of it it's it just shapes everything they're doing they get crook backs and so that's what's going on for people um does i don't know does that answer it oh well you can tell me later two more okay what do you do when you're being trained as part of your professional job to affirm and promote secular creeds yeah um just a show of hands, how many people are experiencing some form of that? Yeah, okay, quite a few. I I, I don't. I haven't given enough thought to that, and I'd like to talk to you, um, and I think it'd be a great discussion to have, so I don't know. I, I, yeah, because I, I'm not living in that day to day. Obviously, a lot of what I've said, I think, plays into that, but that might cause quite a suffering for you, um, depending on what answer you end up going with. And I I would counsel that I I do think we have to be prepared that going into this next century that the the liberties that we've had and the freedom that we've had and the freedom of expression, uh, we ought not to take for granted. We're actually going to have to work for it or realize it's going. um, And we've got to be prepared that if it comes to a point where you cannot obey God and obey man, then you're going to have to choose. And I would encourage you to figure out where that line is, scripture, conscience, wisdom, and then make a stand in your heart saying, I will never do it. I will never transgress God for the sake of keeping my job or not offending or whatever it is. Um, so, but I don't know the particulars, but I think that's something we we'll would probably have to talk about and work out. And I'd love to learn from you because that's your world. What should you do if you're married and your husband or wife leaves you for another person of the same sex? Yeah, how do you deal with it, especially if you love your partner? Well, that's a very, very tough, uh, terrible situation that you would be in. And I have met, I know people that that has happened, not to them specifically, but to their, their parents or things like that. I'm not sure I can give an adequate answer in the time that we have, and I'm not trying to shirk out of it. I just think it's a big, that's a really big question. Um, but it, it keeps coming back to the principles of, okay, what is the, what does the Bible say? Um, so you disapprove of sin. Uh, there's a whole teaching I could give on divorce and remarriage and, and what that looks like and and what you do if if your partner separates from you and all that. That's all bound up into that. So if that's a burning question for you, not just a theoretical one, I'd love to talk to you about it because there's just too many things to probably say in this moment on that. Well, friends, I think... That's a good start. It's five past seven. Uh, I hope we we get the conversation going. Uh, and let's keep chatting. Let's think about it. Let's pray about it. Let's come back next Sunday night um, for more of this. And thank you so much for coming out. It's been a, been a joy. Um, if there's anything that's come up for you that's been troubling or questioning or annoying... Feel free to talk to me about it. I'm an open book. Um, I am a passionate person, but I will promise you I won't, like, yell at you. Um, I'll just, I'll try and talk to you. And if I've learned anything, I'll be nice. Uh, And so come and talk to me, and I'd love to have a further chat with you about it and and see what, you know, you learn and what you know as well. So thank you, everyone. Uh, You're dismissed. Have a good night. You can make more food. You can do whatever you want. And kids, I think the kids need a round of applause. And and probably the parents of those kids, because that was very good. And the parents need a glass of wine. (laughs) All right. Thank you, guys. See you next time. See you next Sunday.